0: And the cyber business gap is really going to force people to rethink their posture and not just taking the best of a product, but how do you secure your total business uh, remote and all.
1: Cybersecurity is something we all know is important, but few of us understand it. Prior to the COVID-19 pandemic, enterprises were relying on more distributed networks, more distributed data, more vulnerable to hackers, criminals and state actors pandemic has merely accelerated trends that were already apparent in the market. The widespread move to distant work due to COVID has raised the stakes on cybersecurity. Now that businesses and government agencies are beginning to reopen, new threats may emerge, and there are concerns about electoral security. Irrespective, the future of work will be affected by the robustness of cybersecurity. Welcome to the Managing the Future of Work podcast from Harvard Business School. I'm your host, Harvard Business School professor, and visiting fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, Joe Fuller. Cybersecurity expert, Bill Connor, joins me today. A tech industry veteran, Bill is CEO of a Dell spinoff, SonicWall. He's a recognized expert in cybersecurity with extensive experience supporting the US government, international agencies, and corporations in developing and implementing cybersecurity strategy. Bill's here today to talk to us about the evolution of cybersecurity, its impact on the future of work, the evolution of demand for skills in cybersecurity, and how COVID will lead to new risks emerging and perhaps even new safeguards being implemented. Well, Bill, welcome to the Managing the Future of Work podcast.
0: Thank you, Joe. It's great to be here.
1: Bill, you've got a long experience in um, cybersecurity, extended networks. Could you tell us a little bit about your background and also about SonicWall, your current company?
0: I have spent a lot of time in telecom uh, in digital systems, put in the first digital radios fiber optics in the country, and used a lot of the new uh, encryption technology and compression technology and that with uh, two of the one of the world's largest uh, three letter telcos uh, here still, and one of the largest suppliers of equipment to them mm. as I got into digital though I realized As we went more and more digital, it was all going to now come to security. And so Hmm. I carved a company out uh, from one of the providers, a company called Intrust. And I was CEO of that for a while. And what did Intrust do? It was all about encryption Hmm. and identity, uh, national identity, passport identities, and digital certificates and encryption that would encrypt your personal information, your biometrics, and then make it interoperate around the world or with, you know, high integrity that you expect from a government. And after I did that, I got exposed to digital communication on end-to-end encryption where, you know, with phones and apps, you could make it so no one could penetrate it. Uh, Out of that, I came across, and that's where I actually met uh, SonicWall was when I was at that encryption company and we were both in a private uh, equity company called Tomo Bravo. It got sold to Dell Technologies it went its way. I sold in trust to another company, and then I got the opportunity to come back with SonicWall. SonicWall is all had been all about network security, and is now all about cybersecurity. In that, and four years ago, I as they carved SonicWall out of Dell Technologies, I was fortunate enough to come back with the team and be the CEO.
1: Well, it sounds like you've really followed the entire trail of the digitalization of networks all the way through to this now most uh, interesting and in some ways, most scary part of the implications of those implementations, which is cybersecurity.
0: Yeah, I think cybersecurity for me is always gonna be around. It's the new norm. Uh, it is having seen this evolution of digital and now you look at what's happening in the world where everything's in your home, you've got internet of things and everything in your home and in your business, uh, everything is digital. All your transactions are more digital, and there's just a tremendous resource gap in terms of people that know it, and there's a tremendous resource gap in capital and expense to keep up against these never-ending, increasing, almost alarming threat rates coming from everybody, from state actors to terrorists to just money-stealing thieves.
1: Bill, cybersecurity for uh, laymen is is a term that's only really become come to the fore in the last few years. Could you just talk a little bit about the evolution of cybersecurity as a discipline and and what have been the the consistent themes in cybersecurity and what what are the things that have emerged most recently?
0: Yeah, if you look at it, clearly network security was kind of the first piece in terms of uh, government networks enterprise networks, meaning the digital transmissions and how you sent files and folders and emails back and forth. Um, web was not as prevalent at the beginning in terms of it. It was kind of later in the evolution of security as it moved from physical security to to more web security uh, that you started to get into the new generation of cybersecurity that was then around you know, how can I steal the web information or your communication and information in a web transaction, be it your financial account or your retail account uh, when you're doing transactions. Now, with the post-COVID environment where everyone works remote uh, and mobile, uh, and, uh, you know, it's obviously a whole new world in terms of how you can attack homes, how you can uh, attack businesses, and how you can attack governments.
1: So obviously, companies were thrown into the deep end in terms of remote operations, dispersed workforce, even at the senior-most levels, C-suites right down to customer reps. Uh, That's been a big stress test on the internet, on private networks, corporate networks. Uh, A lot of the attention has been on bandwidth and the robustness of, of applications like Zoom and Microsoft Teams. What have you seen as, as the key learnings from this, this massive implementation of of remote work? And, and what has it revealed about where we have to go in terms of cybersecurity in the future?
0: Yeah, I think um, everybody post-COVID, uh, Sonequa included, you know, it was a tsunami that hit us. Everybody had been kind of doing more remote as we traveled more and Our workers work from home more. Uh, I'm reminded of one of our big four uh, accounting firms that's one of our clients. You know, they travel all the time to their to their clients locations all the time. Uh, You know, maybe 400,000 employees and they might plan for half of those uh, at any one time to be remote. Uh, When I talked to him in March, it was, you know, Bill, I've got to turn up 100 percent. Uh, 400,000 people in days. <laughs> and that's what we had to do. And it's, and it's no, you know, it's no longer about just getting access to the corporate network and applications. It's about getting that access globally mm-hmm. uh, for all your employees, but also making it secure. Yep. And I think that's what's changing right now is people are having to re architect their business. Therefore, they're having to re-architect their networks where, you know, less data centers and more cloud, right? Less legacy application and more cloud applications like Slack and Dropbox and and Office 365. And now you've got to make those access and identities absolutely solid because you are remote, you are mobile, and you're therefore less secure because you're at home.
1: Bill, one of the things we've seen in the past in various at elements of, of work is that when companies particularly have confronted a, a crisis, for example, the need to cut staff and reconfigure work during the great recession, they took some steps that were temporary, but they they had a lot of learnings from that that became part of their core practice that they just adopted as, as standard on, ongoing operating procedure. Do you see any changes like that emerging from what companies are learning in terms of security as a function of COVID?
0: Yeah, I think if you go back, I think we just look at the big things that have happened, right? Post 9/11, we all learned about backup. Uh, we learned about a little bit about remote working, but we also started to really lean in on cybersecurity and and not just the physical attacks on businesses, but the intellectual property attack by country states, the financial attacks by other country states, be it Russia, Iran, or North Korea. And I think what we're going to learn out of COVID is now it's not just the, the enterprise structure buildings, castles, if you will, that you've got to protect. Those, those endpoints are now your users, your employees, your CEO, your CFO, uh, your researchers, And now we're learning how we're going to have to bring that protection to the home. And when you're in that home, all kinds of other things are IOT that can be brought into that corporate network. And when you're out in that home, you are much more vulnerable uh, as an individual and as a company because you don't have all those protections. And I think we're starting to learn that certainly in different verticals and, and government departments, and this is a very different deal now, uh, because you see the targeting out of this event being very focused on healthcare. You can see you, you can hack for research now in terms of the COVID virus, either to try to, for the good or the bad part of that. So I think we're going to learn that this new business norm and the cyber business gap is really going to force people to rethink their posture. And not just taking the best of a product, but how do you secure your total business, uh, remote and all?
1: So does that require reexamining work processes? I mean, obviously, there's been a long history of trying to get users to be more compliant with security policies. Everything from the dreaded one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine passwords to using passwords on all sites or being, uh, you know, vulnerable to phishing attacks and things like that. When you when you think about changing the whole enterprise. What do you have in mind?
0: Well, I think you're going to re-engineer. I mean, you're going to absolutely make all your applications, uh, you know, second factor authentication. Uh, a lot of companies have done that, but now that you're forced out, you could you know, leave some of your legacy ones only when you are on-prem, right? You can't do that anymore. People are going to rethink data centers in terms of how do they balance cloud versus their own physical data center. They're rethinking cloud apps versus legacy apps and Office 365 and Slack and Drop and all these other applications that are so useful when you're remote as a service, as opposed to having to get back to your corporate network like you used to. They're gonna have to rethink Um, You know, you have your firewalls in your business will do is the individual of the nature that you need a firewall there. The new layered security for this new business norm is in a home. You're going to have to have secure mobile access. You're going to have to have something on your laptop or desktop. We call it endpoint technology. Uh, You're going to have to have cloud application security turned on. Um, And you're going to have to make that trade off in terms of visibility because You've got to make it seamless across all those threat vectors so your managers and your administrators can work remotely and push that to you as opposed to having touch your laptop, desktop, or your your equipment. That's the changes that are really starting to magnify in real time. And I think one of the problems with cloud apps is people aren't sure who's responsible for the security and privacy. If you look at it as a as a user or as a corporate user, or you think that that's taken care of in the cloud offering in the service, and if you look at the fine print, unfortunately, that's your responsibility. So uh, it, it really is in this gray zone as we go through these new applications of how do you secure your corporate assets from your user to those public clouds and that's why we've come up with something called cloud application security to do that. If you look post COVID now, I mean, we've always had a lack of security or cybersecurity skills, right? Uh, there's, you know, depending which report or which school you hear it from, you know, millions of shortages in terms of people that are skilled in cybersecurity protection. Uh, clearly don't have a problem on the offensive side. There's lots of those. But we kind of affectionately call it the cybersecurity business gap. And by that, I mean, there's not enough people. And if you look at the amount of things you have to secure from your laptop, all the IoT devices, and now you think that was one thing in a business. But think of now you, you look at all the things that you've got to do once you're in a home now, uh, all the gaming console, all the um listening devices. So you've got someone working from home, you brought all that into your corporate network by extension. So there's a different level of thought process now about no longer can you afford just to take the best of technology or best of breed. You need to take something that has more portfolio that cuts across all the different cyber security attack vectors like email, Wi-Fi, your building, your home, your laptop. Your desktop, your cloud application. So it's a different way of rethinking cybersecurity and protecting uh, in this new world.
1: So, Bill, companies are beginning now to add, uh, scale back up, beginning to, if not get to a new normal, then start thinking through how to reintroduce work how to bring people back into more traditional work configurations. Is that going to open any particular problems up or, or is that should that be a re- reasonably smooth ride?
0: Well, I think you got a couple of different dimensions to that, Joe, the way I think about it. One, there's a the new dimension of you can't bring everybody, or certainly at least at SonicWall, our bigger locations, we're bringing it back in four steps, so kind of 25% at a time um, and, and giving it a couple of weeks. So if there's any physical issues, you don't, you know, populate it across the entire group. Uh, So you'll need to think through and we're thinking through who needs to be back when and first. But the other side of that coin is, uh, you know, everyone's not going to come back. Um, We kind of see kind of three pods of people, people that are going to stay at home and want to be there and will come in maybe 10% of the time to the other end of that spectrum, which is I'll spend 90% of the time in the office and 10% somewhere else, and then that middle group that's nomadic, that travels a lot in the office some, works from home, uh, and is on the road, the road warriors, if you will. So I think as the ISIT managers and business managers plan for the reopening, they plan for the health part of that and the physical part of that, but now they've got to plan for the workflow and business and security to happen in all three of those settings seamlessly.
1: One of the, the developments that we're anticipating becoming a major part of life uh, as we start returning to normal economic activity is contact tracing. And uh, we've talked to a number of the people involved in, in thinking through how to set up those systems and support them. When you think about contact tracing, does it raise any particular concerns for you as a, a student of cybersecurity and, and the protection of people's privacy over the years?
0: Yeah, it really does, uh, to be honest with you, Joe. I One of the companies I was at, Silent Circle, we did uh, kind of end in encrypted communications. Uh, we had our own platform. Uh, it was an Android-based system. And what people don't realize on applications is, you know, you're either going to the Apple Store to get it or uh, the Google Play Store to get it, right? Now, both of those companies try to vet those apps, but I just remind everybody when they started that, Remember flashlight apps? Uh, yep. We didn't, People didn't know where they were getting them from. Uh, I worry that those apps are not all going to get vetted by either of those two companies, maybe Apple more than Google just with their process. But, you know, people are going to load those in. And once you turn that on, you know, you're putting your location information out. You're putting your personal information out. What people don't know, and we did a lot of research of this at Side Circle, is those apps. Once you're in there, people don't read the fine print. And a lot of times you can't even see it. They can, you know, we showed countlessly, especially on Android, how you can turn on the camera, how you can turn on the mic, uh, how you can do take the contacts. So those are the kind of things that, if we're not careful, the average people that are looking for a contract, uh, you know, Uh, contact tracing app won't know what that app is truly doing uh, in terms of that. And, you know, put in the wrong hands, phone by your bed, you can, or or in your office, you could have a problem uh, in terms of it. The other issue on contact tracing is is geographic centric, right? If you're in certain countries, you don't have an option. (laughs) They are going to track you. You don't have a choice. Our country, UK, different situation. Now, If the government's doing it for health uh, with that, that's great. Um, You're still gonna have to opt into that or they're gonna override it um, uh, in some cases. But as you look at that, just remember privacy equals security times policy. And so in these applications, even though they're handing kind of encrypted tickets on your information, it might be good for health of your tracking Of who you've been around and where you've been. But in a different court of law, if uh, you're getting a divorce, if someone's looking to harm you physically, uh, those things can be used in a very different way. And I think it's really important for transparency around that. And as we learned with personally identifiable information, just because you have it on and you track it doesn't mean where it's stored is going to be safe.
1: Bill, not uh, to pry into any client confidential material, but have there been any you know, significant incursions that, that you're aware of, governments being compromised or companies getting in trouble during the COVID uh, episode?
0: Well, I certainly can't divulge uh, sensitive information, but I think there's enough public in terms of seeing hospitals that are getting hit with ransomware. Mm. Uh, because with ransomware, clearly they want money. And there's a time bomb to that. And certainly with hospitals uh, being overrun in their emergency rooms and intensive care, that's a great opportunity. You've seen several of those reported around the world in terms of it. I think it's also fair to say, while not as reported, uh, research institutions, uh, either on the government side uh, or an agency side, as well as in universities and businesses that are doing research around COVID are seeing an influx of threats uh, between fishing and intellectual property hunting uh, to try to understand and get that research and information of these things, uh, not just by country states, but others that could be well-meaning or not so well-meaning uh, in those attempts. What, one of the other things I worry about is post-COVID, Uh, Nineteen is if you looked in the history of uh, kind of ransomware over the last five years, as as the U.S. and other countries put more sanctions around North Korea, Iran, and others, what went up? Cyber attempts. Uh, They went for more and more ransomware. They went after cities and governments and large enterprises and medium enterprises because they needed more money. Well, in this shutdown of economic reality, uh, I believe you're going to see uh, progressively the the need for financial assets, be it Russia, Iran, North Korea, even China, to become more important. It won't just be about intellectual property or disruption. They're going to need financial gain. And now that you have things like Bitcoin and other digital currencies out there that help kind of launder or, or or get that money exchanged, I think. In, you know, in the future, you'll see much more focus on that at an individual level. Uh, so if you're a high net worth individual, you need to think about that. And if you're uh, a business, you need to think about that because increasingly you're at home and you pose an easier target in this mm-hmm. environment.
1: Bill, so when we think about applications like um, contact tracing and when you've got customers and their suppliers and even further upstream suppliers all working on the same transactions with different levels of, of um, physical distribution of their workforce, different protocols, maybe located in different countries that have different levels of, of public health restrictions in place. What are we going to have to do to ensure sufficient coordination there so that everyone isn't vulnerable vulnerable to the flow is in the convoys, we say, the leakiest the leakiest part of the pipe? Well, I think
0: we really have to go back to public-private partnership, Joe. I've long been an advocate and has spent a lot of personal time on the Hill trying to bridge uh, departments and agencies with their uh, private side uh, counterparts. Think of DOE, right? DOE spends a lot of time with their labs, with universities, with private enterprise, working on regulation, You know, how do you optimize processes in that piece? Increasingly, we're going to need to think about the cyber part of that supply chain and that public-private partnership. Same with health and human services and CDC with hospitals and doctors. No longer can these ecosystems think of just, I've got to solve the virus and get the vaccines and those pieces out. we got to think of the other side of this in this new norm where everyone's remote and how the, the supply chain is fundamentally changed in terms of where people work from and the security associated with that and the risk of that.
1: Are there any jurisdictions or particularly countries that you think are are further along and closer to getting this right than, than perhaps the United States is? Yeah, I,
0: I think the U.S. has come a very long way in public-private partnership. I, I can tell you the day after 9-11, uh, when... Bush spoke at night on the joint session. I briefed both sessions uh, jointly on cybersecurity. I sure. was the first chair of the co-chair of the public-private partnership for DHS between the government and and the departments. A lot's been done on this, but the problem is the speed of. Our what we're doing right has not kept up with the speed of the adversary we're fighting. Uh, a good example is what NCS um, there's in the UK, they've created something called NCSC. It's a national center uh, that actually is charged with bringing the intel and security knowledge of UK government to the private side. And the private side has a way to bring it back. And you know, I've worked with them for, for many years. I mean, so really, I think some countries are getting better at it. We've gotten better. But again, a lot more is done. And I think COVID has changed the nature of why that's important now in terms of how people are working and all industries aren't equal. But the adversaries are now looking very differently. You can get hit. With a lot of people with IoT, it's not a rifle anymore. It is a shotgun.
1: IoT being Internet of Things, Bill. Let me. There, there's a longer-term question. Certainly transcends the COVID pandemic. But you, know, you read one reads that that with advances in quantum computing eventually that there'll be enough computing power to overcome the type of polynomial encryptions we've relied on to protect networks for a long time. It seems like we're going to hit a, a whole new level of, of anxiety about security before we even get ourselves straightened up at the current generation of technology.
0: There's something today called side channel. And all malware goes to your chip to process um, and, and, and exploit your system. Uh, there's been about 10 plus uh, research papers that have shown uh, on Intel chips, how you can go in and literally if I have that capability, I can, un- because I'm at a chip level, I'm behind and it doesn't matter what kind of encryption, I can steal your information. I think as you look forward, it's not just the quantum piece. I think we've got more legs on that. But it's this next generation of capability that attacks the infrastructure and the chip structure that can really cause a problem.
1: One gets a sense, and, and not to, not to get too high level abstraction, that we're that we're in some ways in in this whole domain of system security, and data security, we're arcing toward a return to the mutual assured destruction uh standoff of 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 the depths of the cold wars that apply, apply to nuclear weapons that if if all encryption can be circumvented and therefore leading governments all have the capacity to do incredible violence to the societies of of um countries they fear or, or distrust that um they'll have to hold back because of the response Am am i making this too melodramatic
0: we are absolutely in an arms race in, in the cyber world um, and its country, state and and others uh, in that, uh, both for the good and for the bad. Right. And, and what you've got to think about is it's for us, it's an asymmetric war. We are an open society. That's why public private is so important here. Uh, and we can't have the government holding all the cards and asking and what you have to ask to get the right card because it's too important. Our defense is going to take most because most of our critical infrastructure is in private hands.
1: You know, Bill, here at the, the Managing the Future of Work uh, project, one of the things we're most interested in is the skills base, uh, how that uh, demands of, of companies and and big institutions are changing, the ability of the education system and the training infrastructure to keep up. When you think about cyber, where do we stand in terms of of skills in our, in our capacity to create people with the type of skills and insights to meet the needs that are emerging.
0: not like, Well, we call it a cybersecurity business gap. And what I mean by the business gap is if you look now, especially in this new business norm, we're all remote and working, working from home, look at all the internet of things in your house and in the business, the points of exposure for a business network are escalating almost asymptotically, certainly exponentially. Um, your resources required to protect that need to kind of follow that same high growth rate, right? And so does your capital or your expense in a traditional model. The reality is though, we don't have enough people. I mean, depending on your report, it's you know anywhere from three to 10 million people short in the workplace with cybersecurity skills. No company has enough capital or expense do everything they do to lock themselves down digitally and protect themselves on defense using traditional models. So we really think you've got to rethink the model because you can't have the people, the budgets, capital or expense to do that. So instead of doing, you know, you got to look at where the attacks are coming from, from Wi-Fi, from your endpoint, from your cloud applications, uh, from different threat vectors that are coming into you, uh, email, et cetera, PDFs. So we're really seeing a need now for a holistic solution around it where you can work remotely, you can have zero touch deployment, uh, you can administer across those pieces uh, with one management capability, one resource to go do that. So that's part of what we've been re-engineering over the last four years at SonicWall. And you can see now you will never be able to keep up against the bad actors and the threat vectors if you try to just take the best of breed of every single point of that, because you're going to have a hard time with resources, capital, expense and people to keep up with that model.
1: How do you view the whole question of cybersecurity for elections, whether it's traditional electoral systems or some of the new uh, systems that people are trying to, to deploy to make counting faster and, and, and the process less manpower intensive?
0: In any system, identity is first and foremost and non-repudiation of that identity, meaning it is who it is, and one vote, one person, and that person's alive and qualified in whatever your regulations are for voting, Uh, whether it's physical, whether it's mail-in, or whether it's digital. That doesn't matter. That's the first level uh, regardless. That starts to open up in mail-in things uh, how how are you going to vet that, right? Uh, in digital, you got to make sure the credentialing system before you do the electronic vote is right. Um, I have a lot less fear of the digital uh, at the national level. Those systems, we vetted them in my previous company. There's a whole task force still looking at that with the cyber threats and how they've evolved. But the digital identity of that the digital signing, meaning that you once you've made your things, you digitally sign that. And what signing is, is think of it as a non-repudiation. No one can change one of those marks without it being noticed. That's what digital signatures do. And now it then becomes the transmission of that and making sure if someone did it, it's transferred um, and, and accounted for. Uh, in terms of that, and and those systems are connected. So that's kind of network security and digital signature signature technology that does that, similar to what happens in global passports now around the world. So that is pretty comfortable in terms of the security and the protections around that. You just got to have to watch the bad actors that may not send them or may may try to alter those those boxes in some way. And there's a lot of focus on those to make sure they're not tampered with either in content or in volume around that. Uh, and then in the final ultimate outcome is the posting of it. So I feel fairly strong at the national level that you know, if you got the right piece on the identity getting in, the fundamental security and technology under it is, is ruggedized enough that that should not be an issue in the U.S., unlike what's happening in the States and certain parties here in the U.S.
1: Well, Bill, I'm not sure early in your career when you when you started making decisions about how to spend your life, you could have possibly anticipated the kind of wild ride you would have experienced. But but thanks so much for sharing all your experience and your insight into cybersecurity and and everything that the digitalization of processes is going to mean to us now in the post-COVID world.
0: Joe, it's a pleasure. It's really fun to have this discussion. Hopefully it's useful for uh, your followers.
1: Well, I know it will be, and we're very appreciative of your time. Thanks for joining us on the Managing the Future of Work podcast at Harvard Business School. We hope you enjoy the Managing the Future of Work podcast. If you haven't already, please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to podcasts. You can find out more about the Managing the Future of Work project at our website, hbs.edu forward flash Managing the Future of Work. While you're there, sign up for our newsletter.